on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, how are the grains and cereals holding up on Tasmania's $100 million farm? We're not too bad. Obviously, it's been pretty wet all around, but we're getting enough sunshine and things in between, so it's getting drying out enough between the rains so we can get on the paddocks and get our furt and our sprays on. So we're, we're in an OK position at the moment. And trialling traditional Chinese herbs in Tasmania. It's a very different crop in that the quality is assessed on the sort of chemical bioactive component of the roots. So it's something that we've got a very steep learning curve to embark on and to achieve it. But nevertheless, we were hopeful. Traditional Chinese herbs being trialled in the northwest. That story coming up. And more on the grains harvest in a very desirable property in the north. G'day, Tony, with you on this wintry old Monday. Getting right back to winter, isn't it? We'll check the weather at the halfway stage to see what's in store this week. In a moment, we'll talk about how the weather is causing chaos for the trucking industry on the mainland, trying to get produce to various destinations. And also coming up in the second half of the show, the do's and don'ts of on-farm accommodation. Plus, we'll take your thoughts on any issues via the text line. Say good day, 0438 922 936. That number, 0438 922 First up, trucking companies are finding it increasingly difficult to move freight across eastern Australia. Flooding has caused key transport routes, including the Sturt Highway around Hay, to close. Many other roads are badly damaged. GTS Freight Management's National Operations Manager Ben Kenner has told Kelly Hollingsworth it's a huge logistical challenge for a company that has trucks covering around 160,000 kilometres in a 24-hour period. With the Sturt Highway closed to all traffic west of Hay, uh, meaning there's significant diversions in place to Sydney and Brisbane um, from Mildura and Adelaide, which was predominantly where we operate out of. Um, Generally, our trucks operate via the new highway, however we're now heading south of Barranald, across to Deniliquin, up into Wagga and on to Brisbane for there, adding about 400 um, kilometres travel time, I should say, for one way. Yeah, it's pretty pretty challenging. Have you ever come across anything like this before in the time that you've been in the trucking industry? I've spent 11 years here at GTS and um, I haven't seen anything like it myself and the people I talk to who are more experienced around me share similar stories. So we've faced a lot of adversity in the past with flooding and fire and all those sorts of things but this is certainly shaping as the biggest um, weather event I've dealt with in my time here. We're sitting in what is normally your boardroom. What's happening in here at the moment and to paint a picture we're staring at a big screen, which is essentially the live traffic websites that New South Wales operates so you can see what conditions are like where you've got vehicles. Yeah, it's normally a boardroom for business, but I've, uh, I've hijacked that as in my role from now. So it's a bit of a control centre for us. Um, we've got fantastic tools with live traffic. Um, we've got the RMS, local police, who are really, really helping us and giving us information as fast as they possibly can. But, yeah, a lot of time is spent here assessing what roads may be out of action or potentially be coming out of action and um, yeah, allows us to be a little more agile and make better decisions. Now I imagine that road conditions don't change 9 to 5 Monday to Friday. So what is a typical workday looking like for you? We're working uh, massive hours from 
everyone from our director um, right through our business, our team's working incredibly hard. Um, our drivers are working as hard as they possibly can, safely and legally. Um, but, yeah, we're all uh, working around the clock. But how do you keep on top of this and know what's going on? Yeah, that's, that's my role predominantly now. I've basically, basically turned into watching weather all the time and pre- preparing for the next route and next contingency and having that prepared, for, ready for my team to go in case we get another constraint or, or road closure or diversion. So that's predominantly my role now is um, allowing us to be set up for success and to do the job safely by prepara- preparing accordingly. Diesel isn't cheap at the moment. If you're talking about a truck going to Brisbane having to do an extra 400 kilometres, there must be huge additional costs placed on the business. There are significant commercial impacts, there's, there's no doubt about it. The fuel price in this country is still really volatile, um, so we've got to be agile with fuel levies, those sorts of things, but the additional um, distances travelled now, we, we have to start to share some of that cost. We can't absorb that as a business, and the rest of the industry will be doing the same thing. So just another another challenge we have to face but um, we can't wear it all unfortunately. Having the roads open is one thing but having them in a condition that you can probably travel on is another. What kind of situations are your drivers coming across and are they documenting that for you along the way? They are uh, within reason. Um, we, we ask them to focus on their tasks solely but um, our, all of our trucks are fitted with um, front-facing front and rear-facing cameras so we can assess um, road conditions at a, from a live, live level, which is fantastic um, with, with, with that feature. Um, but the, the images we see of potholes, parts of roads missing, uh, it's fairly confronting and for it's, it's quite unsafe for a lot of road users. Um, so we just try and do our best, but our average, average speeds of our vehicles are well down and, and that's by design just to do the job safely. In normal conditions, freight would also be moved by rail. Is much of that still happening at the moment, given that some train lines have also been affected by flooding? Rail is severely impacted at the moment, and a lot of this country's freight does operate via rail, predominantly to the west. But rail tracks are really, really impacted, and we've, we've seen a big demand for our services to head to the west um, where normally the rail providers would head so yeah there's big impacts. This would normally be a hugely busy time for you as companies get ready for Christmas they obviously need to have stock on their shelves to sell is that putting you under even more pressure? We're 25 working days from Christmas day so this industry is very very much under the pump at this time of the year in a normal operating time our customers are fantastic. We have great relationships and partnerships. Um, they they allow us additional travel times, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but the, the the whole network is disrupted. So, the, from us um, to a distribution centre, right down to the um, supermarket shelf, everyone's feeling the pinch. But um, yeah, we've got our morale still quite high. There's some fantastic people in our organisation and the industry uh, who are all working very hard. But yeah, some people are getting a little bit tired, but we'll be right. We'll get there. Class half full there. GTS Freight Management's National Operations Manager, Ben Fenner, speaking with Kelly Hollingworth about the issues facing the trucking companies because of the flooding right across the mainland.
Well, this wet season means abundance when it comes to harvesting grain. Farmers are looking for ways to minimise loss. Madeleine Rojan joined farmers and harvest experts at the Grain Harvester Forum in Cressy to hear how the season is looking as well as any tips farmers are getting. Harvest specialist Cassie van der Westheisen flew in from South Australia and was one of the experts helping farmers get the most from their harvesting machines. And we're just um, doing harvester setups and I work on the John Deere's to, you know, reduces grain loss and get performance up. What are some of the common problems that farmers are facing with their harvest? Well, in the past we've heard a lot about the grain loss that's coming through the machines and um, over the last four or five years we've done a lot of work on it to make sure that we reduce the grain loss and I think we've, we've made giant leaps in it to, to make sure that we get that right. What tips do you give to farmers to maximise their efficiencies? Uh, well, after days like this we give some some advice to customers for them to take home and, and do modifications on their machines and um, the ones that we've done in the West and, and in Queensland, customers came back to us with great results so hopefully they listen to us and do it. This is the 15th clinic that, we, that we've that done in Australia, uh, so Queensland, yeah, all around it. Uh, we've started off in New South Wales, very wet New South Wales, um, WA and then went up to Queensland and we've done... SA in Victoria a few weeks ago, so Tassie is the last one on the list. Brilliant. And what kind of feedback are you, are you getting? Uh, it's very humbling. Like, a lot of the feedback is very positive, and people love it, and people reckon that, you know, the customers reckon that some schools were the best that they've been to. Um, it's always a great compliment if a contractor that's been on Edis for 30 years come back and tells me that he's learned more in a day than what he's done over the last 30 years. So, yeah, that's a good feedback. How big a problem are weeds during harvest? Yeah, weeds are a big problem and I think with chemical resistance that's getting a bigger problem in the world. Um, we do going to talk about later in the day, we're going to talk about the harvester weed seed control units, which is the mechanical units that goes onto the back of the machines. So I can see there's a place for it, um, more and more chemical resistance. So I think getting rid of them in a mechanical way is the way to go. Yeah, so we're talking a lot of mechanics today, but how important is data and keeping an eye on the numbers as well? Um, We keep on saying if we can't um, measure it, we can't control it. So we need to know what we are losing or what we are gaining. So we need to know what we are losing before we can manage it. If you can manage it, you can control it. And Tassie, you know, we're quite a small grower, but how important is Tasmania as a state? first time that I'm here it looks pretty beautiful so I would say it's a very important part of the of the um, Aussie ag industry um, everything is different it's small seeds I deal with a lot of small seeds in South Australia just with um, with Lucen but over here they do a lot of you know very small seed carrots and porythrum and beetroot that I've heard about this morning so it'll be a test today to see what questions we get and how we're going to deal with it. Great country and great state and yeah glad to be here. Harvest specialist Cassie van der Westheisen speaking there to Madeleine Rojan at the Grain Harvester Forum in Cressy. Penny Hooper from the Canara property Vaucluse was also at the clinic and found it very beneficial. We're not too bad obviously it's been pretty wet all around but we're getting enough sunshine and 
things in between so it's getting drying out enough between the rains so we can get on the paddocks and get our furt and our sprays on so we're, we're in an okay position at the moment. Yeah that's great um, and yeah as you said we have had a few days of sun and some for the next few days. Have you been out um, putting the silage up? Uh, not yet we're due to do that in a couple of weeks just we're yeah, doing the edges of the crops this year as a sort of fire break and a bit of weed control. But yeah, we sort of after we had about 50 mils on the weekend, so we'll be waiting a couple of weeks before we can get onto some of the paddocks to do that. And what is it looking like on the paddock right now? Uh, so yeah, the, the crops are looking pretty good. We've got some faber beans that, yeah, there's parts of those that are about six feet tall, so they're going pretty well. Um, yeah, and the cereals and canola have come through the wet reasonably well. We're quite happy with where they're at. Yeah, so it's pretty wet in the paddock. Has it been difficult to harvest at all? Uh, We haven't started harvesting anything yet, so we're probably looking like getting into our canola around Christmas time and the cereals, yeah, they won't be until the new year, but obviously it all depends on what the weather's doing and how quickly they come in, but yeah. Do you know if there's a lot that's going to come through the wet? Yeah, we should be able to harvest most of what we what we put in earlier in the year. Uh, yeah, we, we're pretty comfortable. We haven't really lost too much due to the wet. It's more been just the timing of, of fertilisers and sprays that's been affected, but we've managed to get caught up in the dry spells. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. And do you have much idea of how prices are going to be? Oh, I'm not really across that, to be honest. Um, yeah, we sort of... Yeah, my, we've got uh, Simon on the farm who handles most of that stuff, so I'm not really across it. And do you know where your harvest will be going? Yeah, so we, all of our grain goes locally, really. Tassie's a net importer of grain, so we try to keep it all in the state. We've got a bit that goes for malting, but a fair bit of our barley will go for malting, and yeah, we've got a yeah, feed wheat we've got some contracts in place for, and then we've got some storage we can... We can store about half of what we harvest so we can put that in place to sell throughout the year. And we're here at the Grain Harvesting Clinic. Um, is there anything that you'll be implementing, Any anything that you've learnt so far this morning? Uh, a lot of it's fairly new to me. I'm more involved in the livestock side of the business and managing the silos at harvest, so not so much in the paddock. So that was probably one of the reasons I wanted to come along today was to get my head around how the headers actually work and how we can you know make little adjustments to get a cleaner sample and make sure we're not getting too many losses out the back so yeah lots of learning for me today. Yes I like that getting your head around the headers. Penny Hooper from the recently sold property for clues at Canara talking there to Madeline Rojan at the Grain Harvester Forum in Cressy. And the story of the $100 million plus sale of all clues is one of the many interesting stories on our ABC Rural Online site, if you want to have a look at that story. Coming up, a warning about a farm scam and 60 years of research into honeybees ready to download. The ABC Giving Tree for 2022 is up and decorated. The appeal raises donations for Tasmanians most in need over the holiday season. Donate online now at abc.net.au forward slash giving tree. Closer to Christmas, we distribute your generosity through charities right around Tasmania. You might miss dropping a present under the tree, but empowering a family to make their own choices about what they have for Christmas and how they use the money you give is the true gift of giving. 
Coast to Coast. This is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. A farmer is warning anyone using digital invoices to carefully check details after she nearly fell victim to a complex scam. The scammers managed to intercept and change invoices from legitimate businesses, adding text that instructed the pay that the billing details had changed. As Luke Radford reports, the identity of the scammers or how widespread their attacks have been until now are still unknown. It was just another day in the farm office for Rebecca Hamilton, who was working through invoices when she noticed something strange. I manage the accounts within our business, so I was busy paying accounts and two invoices came upon my desk with red writing stretched across the middle of them, informing me that there's been a change of bank account details. And both of these invoices relate to suppliers who we have previously done business with. So whenever I have a change of bank account details, I always send a text message just to confirm that the bank account has actually changed. And when I heard back from the first person, it appeared they have kept the same bank account for two years. And so it rang an alarm bell. She also supplied me with the last four digits of their bank account. And it was, in fact, different to what appeared on the invoice that I was about to pay for $24,000 for the supply of lupins and barley. That person in question was Christina Fay, who has a business selling grain. So Beck uh, texted me, and I wasn't actually overly concerned to start off with. I said that I would check the account when I got home, which I did, and we had sent... We had sent them numerous, uh, well, not numerous, we'd sent them eight invoices in the past that had been paid, and this was an account that we had always used. And so I, I texted her and said, look, it's the same account. And she sent me back a copy. Uh, she took a photo of the invoice and it had on the invoice um, in red, uh, in capitals, please note change of bank account details from September 2022. And then the, uh, to all intents and purposes, it was, our invoice. Uh, it had our, our invoice number on it. It had our um, trading details. It was all correct, and but it had been changed. The account had been changed. So where had this scam come from? At first glance, Beck Hamilton suspected it may have come from a piece of online software she's just started using. No, first and foremost, it was the red writing and the fact that two invoices with a very similar format and as I've looked into it, they've both come out of the Zero Software Accounting Program, which we ourselves have actually just started using this financial year. So it was the red writing, the fact that there was a lot of similarity in these two invoices from two different suppliers. We put a series of questions to Zero about the incident. A spokesperson said while Zero can't comment publicly on individual customer matters or potential security incidents, the company takes allegations of fraudulent activity very seriously and will work with customers to investigate these types of incidents. It also said that in line with security obligations, the company is required to report any security compromises both to customers and the regulators. Christina Fay says she hasn't had any other customers using Zero report scam activity, which her accountant supports. However, there was another suspect. Zero works through your email account, so that's where the scammer could have gotten in. After Beck um, contacted me about this, I contacted our accounting firm, who they originally set up uh, the Zero for us, 
and they've not heard of it being intercepted from Sierra. But of course, when you when you send the invoices, you actually do send them from an email rather than from Zero itself. So you have to. The email goes out from your business email address, and it's received from their end on their business address uh, email address. So I guess it, it may well be that people have intercepted them at her end, the invoices at her end rather than ours. Despite the confusion about where the scammer was coming from, what was clear was where the money would have gone. Here's Rebecca Hamilton again. When I looked at them closer, they both had the same BSB number, so I typed that into my computer just to see where that bank account is actually or where that where that bank branch is, and it listed it as New South Wales and both of these suppliers operate and live in Victoria. So I I thought that was a bit alarming. The branches in question are registered as Westpac outlets. We put a series of questions to Westpac, who, like Zero, said they were unable to comment on individual customer matters due to confidentiality obligations. However, the spokesperson did say that business email scams are among the most common scams targeting Australians at the moment, where scammers impersonate a known business employee or supplier for example, by intercepting emails and sending false invoices. Rebecca Hamilton says at the end of the day, it's a warning to the farming community to stay vigilant, particularly in the age of digital invoices. Yeah, look, when I first started doing the accounts, all of my invoices came through the post and and I really liked that system. Increasingly, we're being forced to pay invoices from our um, inbox. So invoices arrive into my inbox and I... I print them off and um, and pay them. The first was for $24,000. Um, as I said, for the supply of lupin and barley, we run a livestock business, so we buy in a lot of grain. Um, and the second was a quarterly payment for a lease block for $22,000. So, yeah, both very significant amounts of money. Certainly is. Farmer Rebecca Hamilton ending that report by Luke Radford on a scam on digital invoices. Well, 60 years' worth of research into honeybees that was at risk of being lost has been digitised, collated and made it free to download. Research and Development Corporation AgriFutures Australia says the document called Be Informed encompasses 280 projects funded by the industry. Honeybee and Pollination Program Manager Annalise McGaw says it's the culmination of the levy apiarists have been paying since 1962. They have been investing those funds into research and development since 1962. But what we were finding was with the technology age and and the fact that some of the data is is not always published in journals, it's what's called grey publications, uh, was just getting lost um, within within time. And so we decided that we really wanted to collate it all so that people, so that we weren't having researchers coming at us with trying to reinvent the wheel, more importantly than anything, but also to show the value of having a levy for such a long period of time for other industries who maybe have just got their levy started or are thinking about putting a levy up for research and development. And in that process, was there some work that you came across that that sort of really took you by surprise? We ran a project where we all divvied up the Be Informed document and we had a look at 
uh, different aspects within it. And what was really interesting that came out from the document, because it's, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it, but it's 375 pages. So it's a pretty substantial document. So going back through that, we sort of chunked it up and people had a look at it. And we found everything from how to look at um, non-chemical use uh, and minimum chemical use for options of managing varroa, which was done in 2010, um, through to all sorts of pollinator work um, and then uh, around diseases, more around diseases around European fowl brood and all sorts of really, really different things. I mean, uh, one in particular that's from um, 1991 is around amino acids and profiles and crude protein levels in pollen, which we're now doing further research on top of that now. So it's, yeah, some really, really interesting stuff has been found uh, in this document. It's a great resource for anybody who is interested in bees, researchers out there who are looking to research anything to do with bees and just for the general public as well it's such a an amazing document that uh, our researchers put together that I think anybody would be really interested in that we have a massive suite of documents behind this 60 years of research and development that are all on our website and are available for people looking ahead where for you is the really interesting research going to come from? What are the big questions we haven't yet answered about our honeybees? So I think the really big thing that we have yet to answer for honeybees is how to have them prepped and ready to go for pollination, which is probably outside of their normal or standard working hours in a way to put it um you know almond pollination is early and so it's in uh, july august so how do we have our bees ready to go by that time which is realistically late winter where they probably would still be you know relatively underproducing. so how do we get them to that stage and a lot of that is around supplementary feeding how can we uh, basically feed our bees to get them really healthy and ready to go, reduce the pests and disease associated with it so that they are ready to go, hit the ground running as soon as they hit those almond orchards and then move on to canola, cherries, apples, pears and move on from there. So, yeah, I think that's the really important thing. I mean, bees have a downtime too. And I don't know if you've ever trained for like a half marathon, which is what I would equate almond pollination to. You, it takes a bit of time to get there and get ready to do your half marathon or your almond pollination. So it's definitely about building them up, getting them prepped because they are absolutely athletes. Love my half marathons, yes. AgriFutures Australia Honeybee and Pollination Program Manager Annalise McGaw speaking to Kelly Buchanan. And you can find that document online by searching for AgriFutures Australia. Be informed. Coming up, a check on the latest wool markets as shedding sheep become more popular. Some advice for on-farm accommodation. And also a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Wood. Thanks, Tony. Tasmania's Police Association believes there's been an increase in mental health support available to members, but that workload issues remain a concern. An inquest begins today into the deaths by suicide of four police officers between 2016 and 2020. Rates of suicide are far higher among emergency 
emergency service personnel than the general population. Tasmania police are urging motorists to be responsible when they get behind the wheel after a man was caught drink driving three times over the limit on one of the state's main highways. The 38-year-old was stopped by police on the Midland Highway at Oatlands on Sunday after someone reported him driving erratically. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says some critics of the government's industrial relations legislation hold an ingrained ideological objection to workers being paid fairly. Labor's wide-ranging IR bill has been criticised by business groups and the coalition who argue the expansion of multi-employer bargaining could lead to more strikes. And the road to the pinnacle of Kanani Mount Wellington will be closed for the remainder of the week while an 18-tonne boulder is dealt with. The rock, the size of two African elephants, dislodged during recent heavy rain. More news at one. John O'Hara. Do you have a favourite collective now? A smack of jellyfish is up there. A loveliness of ladybirds. I love it. I quite like a mess of iguanas. Is it a murder of crows? A murder of crows. I mean, that sounds aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having texts come in. People think the collective noun for a snail might be a slugfest <laughs> yep. or a squelch of snails. That's from Marie. Your afternoon with John O'Hara. No, it's an escargatoire. From <laughs> half past one weekdays on ABC Radio Hobart. With Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six is our text line number. Time for the latest on the weather. Belinda House joins us from the bureau. Hello, Belinda. Uh, good afternoon, Tony. A bit of everything uh, today. It's back to winter. Some rain about. How much have we had? Yeah, look, um, we've had a reasonable amount of uh, rain through the west of the state um, yesterday and overnight, typically 20 to 30 millimetres about the west. The highest rainfall gauging was 36 millimetres at Lake Margaret, but moving away from the elevated parts through the west there, really not a whole lot in the gauge, typically only one or two millimetres. Since uh, nine o'clock this morning, we've seen showers uh, mostly about the north, west and south. The highest gauging we've had since nine is 11 millimetres at Scotts Peak and Zeehan and 10 millimetres at Cape Bruni and Cradle Valley. So we're going to see the shells, they're pretty much making their way right across the state now. So we will see them statewide through the afternoon, but they are going to clear from the, the northeast corner, if you like, uh, later this evening, some clearing back from the north and the east. Now, air's pretty cold coming up with it, so likely to see snow down to the 500 metre mark uh, this evening. Some small hail accompanying those showers, and we may even see some thunderstorms uh, this afternoon as well. And winds are fairly gusty, turning around that colder southwesterly during the day. So rainfall yet to come today, perhaps another 10 or 20 millimetres through the, the west of the state, um, perhaps only a handful of millimetres elsewhere yet today for the other locations away from the rest, from the west. So moving into Tuesday, look, we're going to see those showers about the west, south and Bass Strait Islands, um, possible elsewhere in the afternoon. That snow is going to be down to the 600 metre mark early in the morning, but it is going to rise pretty rapidly during the day tomorrow and winds will be fresh to strong and gusty west to southwesterly so a fairly windy day in store for us tomorrow. Then on Wednesday we'll see similar pattern in the weather Wednesday uh, and Thursday with showers about the west and far south on Wednesday with fine conditions elsewhere. Fresh and gusty west to southwesterly winds initially but they will begin to ease on Wednesday morning. Then on Thursday those showers about the west and far south with mainly fine conditions elsewhere with westerly winds. On Friday 
today, perhaps a, a little lighter rainfall totals, but still about the west and far south with mainly fine conditions elsewhere. Winds will become light and variable Friday evening, so really a moderating trend in those winds by the end of the week. But four-day rainfall totals through to midnight Friday, 20 to 40 millimetres about the west and far south of the state, but really concentrated there with uh, perhaps 0 to 5 millimetres elsewhere, so some places will miss out beyond, beyond uh, today. And a stack of warnings. Yeah, look, we do have a stack of warnings. The, the warn uh, the coastals first. We've got a gale warning for the uh, northern, eastern and southern coastal waters from Sandy Cape to Southeast Cape. It excludes Bank Strait and Franklin Sound, um, and that's for northwest to southwesterly winds. We're strong wind warning covering Bank Strait and Franklin Sound, also the central west and the southwest coast. Um, Strong winds also for the southeast inshores and the central plateau lakes. Back on land, a sheep grazier's warning uh, for the agricultural district, which will continue through tomorrow morning. A bushwalker's weather alert for the western and central plateau forecast districts and a road weather alert for the chance of uh, snow above those elevated roads this evening. Okay, and the coastal waters and swell. Yeah, let's have a look. The swell observation that um, Cape Sorrel came up pretty well during this morning. It's sitting up around the four to five metre mark, peaking up around about the seven, even eight metres there. And that's coming in from the west-southwest over on Mariah Island, uh, coming in from the, the south-southwest, and it's sitting just about one to two metres at the moment. So turning to our forecast, so the coastal winds uh, overview, westerly winds, 20 to 30 knots about the north and east, but we're expecting that southwesterly change, 20 to 30 knots are extending throughout in the afternoon, and they are expected to reach up to 35 knots about the north east and south. So seas typically around three metres. So the swell across the west and south, we can expect to see that west to southwesterly swell at three to four metres, picking up to five metres in the west this evening. Across the north, the westerly swell of one to three metres. In the east, the south to southwesterly swell at one and a half to two and a half metres, although up to three and a half metres offshore in the south. Terrific, Belinda. Thank you. Thank you. Belinda House from the Bureau. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And we'll talk about some Chinese medicinal herbs, traditional herbs being grown in a trial in the northwest of the state, coming up for you very shortly. To the wool industry now, and wool markets remain fairly lacklustre at the moment. Prices falling for yet another week. The fluctuations in the US exchange rate and general lack of confidence in the market is not helping the trade. His Nutrient State Wool Manager, Stuart Rain, explaining why. In US dollar terms, the eastern market indicator was actually up at 8.33 cents, which was a 20 cent, 27 cent lift. But what we saw during the week was the Aussie dollar lift uh, 2.68 cents to uh, 67.64 US. So the exchange rate lifted and probably tempered or took a little bit of the impetus out of the uh, greasy traders' books and uh, made trading with our major partner, China, difficult to conclude prior to that sale when there were some expectations that it might be okay. So um, benchmark eastern market indicator in Australian cents closed at 1,232, which was down 9 cents, and most other indicators followed suit. And this is the lowest level that eastern market indicator has been since January 2021. Should we, should we read much into that? I think figures and um, horizons and, and anniversaries are, I guess they're for the record books. No, I don't think we should read too much into that and it's probably not an enviable place to be considering the market was soaring along fairly well in most more recent memory. 
But um, as we know in our market, sometimes these cycles, we must go through the cycle to then once again enjoy those better prices. So the the sudden uh, change in the US currency, was that expected or is that what threw everyone off and gave everyone the jitters? Yeah, definitely. Well, was it expected... um, I guess these days we, ex- we we expect the unexpected, but um, certainly off the back of a very favourable G20, and we that was very well publicised. Uh, our prime minister meeting with uh, our president President Xi, um, that certainly injected some confidence. Uh, but from a trading perspective, uh, when the dollar gains over a couple of hundred points like it did, it certainly makes it more difficult, especially when our customers are being very price sensitive. So it just takes away any of that business that was potentially there to be done, takes it away on the week. But of course, this week's a new week and um, you know, let's see what happens in the next you know, today and uh, overnight before tomorrow's sale. Talking of China, uh, what's what's happening with mills over there? That They haven't been running at full capacity? Yeah, there's lots of reports about that and I think the unfortunate thing is that uh, None of my colleagues um, have been in China for a number of years now, so when we're getting reports from the ground there, second, sometimes second-hand reports, uh, but not able to verify that personally. So I think that'll be a bit of a, a, a key going forward that when we visit China, and actually you can see that from ourselves, but there's certainly some challenges in that space. And also, as we know, there's still some lockdowns that are affecting transportation and movement within the country. Now, generally, November, December is the period when a lot of uh, farmers and exporters like to get their wool into stores and onto boats so that they can get to these mills before the general Christmas shutdown. But you're expecting that's not going to... That momentum isn't happening at the moment. No. Those of us that have been around a long time, we usually overlay those learnings from the past and say, well, look, November and December generally is a good time to sell. Exporters are generally busier prior to that shutdown, especially in Australia where we have that Christmas New Year period. So as we know, 24th of December, things pretty much slow to a, you know, a, a very slow pace over that break. Hasn't happened yet, but we're still, we're not in December yet. So I'm ever hopeful that that will still occur in some shape or form. Do you feel that growers have changed their uh, selling strategies this year because of the, the volatility in the market? Yes, some growers definitely have, especially with this market easing week on week um, and you know not showing a lot of upside. They have um, de- you know decided to sell early rather than hold for December or indeed February. So certainly there is some wool being sold that would have been held for another couple of months. That's Stuart Rain, State Wool Manager with Nutrient Ag, chatting there to Larissa Smith about the latest wool sales. Well, it seems the demand for shedding sheep is on the increase. The recent annual Sheepmaster Ram auction, there were 95 rams sold, pretty much doubling last year's numbers. Merino producer John Della runs Ori Cowrie near Waruka. He paid the top dollar of 110000 for one of six rams he took home from the auction. This was the first time purchasing a shedding breed and he's hoping that the new rams will work with his current operation and reduce the workload. Uh, we're looking to diversify the business into you know into a shedding breed. Just uh, a few market trends. You know, there has been a big shift into sort of shedding type sheep throughout Australia for various reasons. One being shearers uh, availability, just a bit of a shortage. And also the amount of wet weather. Um, people aren't able to get their sheep shorn. Plus also a bit of labour um, to get people to, to do work with stock, you know, like landmarking and various other things as well. And, you know, just workload at home. Uh, we find similar issues as far as labour-wise. So we're, you know, hoping to be able to run 
similar numbers of sheep, if not more, uh, with less labour units. So are you looking to move more into the meat space now? Yeah, so we've gone ahead and registered a sheep master stud in South Australia. You know, we purchased a big number of ewes and we, we actually purchased six rams out of the sale the other day and going to do an embryo transfer program and some AI as well. So we, we currently run White Suffolk and Pole Dorset studs um, with the intention, uh, if we can you know, get the sheep masters to work well, we'll move out of the White Suffolk's and Dorset's. We just feel that if we're going to have a sheep producing meat, uh, they might as well not have any wool on them to make them easier to run and, and manage. Will you continue with your wool operation? Uh, absolutely, yeah. So we have no intention of moving out of out of the merino operation. Yeah, we're, we're going to continue running the stud and commercial side of things, but it sort of works in well having multiple blocks that we can we can sort of run things fairly separately and um, I think they'll sort of complement each other and to the point I think my merinos will benefit from me running a percentage of the flock of shedders because I'll have more time to spend with them and you know and continue to run them properly because we'll be sort of about a third of our, our ewes will be fairly low maintenance within about two years. John Daller from Orikawi at Baruka in South Australia. Neil Garnett is the founding breeder of Sheepmaster. He says he has seen a change in attitude towards shedding sheep breeds, especially in the last year. It's taken me 30 years breeding this flock, this stud, so I've, I've taken a lot of heat early in early days um, from merino breeders. You know, what do you want to do this for? So it's been a long, hard road, and I've seen in the last five years a different attitude in the last 12 months, there's just been quite overwhelming. I think uh, all of a sudden, it's extraordinary how everyone makes the same decision at once, but all of a sudden everyone's wanting shedding sheep. Certainly the younger generation can see the changes taking place within the sheep industry of Australia. It's driven by uh, uh, labour costs, uh, maintenance, work-safe issues, insuring sheds. Most shearing sheds are getting old, uh, the cost of shearing, the frustration with shearers, floods. It's uh, a whole series of issues and, of course, price. Based on what you've seen in the last year, where do you see the next decade heading? Well, shedding sheep in Australia, they tell us, are about 5% of the ewe population. I expect in the next 10 years that could be as high as 25%. So there's a massive J-curve of growth in the industry. Um, which is very exciting because in a lot of agricultural things, it's pretty tough. How's that compared to where you saw yourself last year? Well, last year we couldn't have dreamt of what we would have achieved this year, and so we were dreamers. Um, So who knows where it all takes us. It comes back to the decisions of farmers across Australia to, you know, what they're doing, and it depends on the success of shedding sheep. Uh, And they're uh, they're not perfect, you know, we have containment issues. They have, they have a different mindset. You need to manage them slightly differently. Some people find that difficult. Other people find that an advantage. So it's, you know, it's not all cut and dried, but we're out there um, trying to solve problems as they come along. What do you think will happen? Say everything does take off in the next 10 years, where does that leave the wool industry? Well, I think the wool industry is a wonderful industry. And there'll always be the passionate wool growers. And in a way, it's very good for the people who stay in the industry because supply and demand is a very blunt industry instrument and the price of wool will go up if there's less of it. 
So, you know, it's, it's not all bad news for the wool industry. That's Neil Garnett, a shedding sheep breeder, speaking with Sophie Johnston about the growing popularity of the shedding sheep breed. Now, Australia has the potential to muscle in on the Chinese traditional medicine market. The industry is worth about $130 billion at the moment, and it's growing. Meg Powell caught up with Dougal Close from the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture to check the groundbreaking trial into growing Chinese medicinal crops in Tasmania at 4th in the northwest. He says there's been some spectacular failures along the way, but overall they're showing potential. Yeah, we are working with an industry partner, um, Australian Education Management Group, to investigate the potential um, as new crops for Chinese medicinal herbs here in Tasmania. Quite exciting. It's been about 12 months since then. What's what's happened? What are you up to now? Yeah, well, we, um, we got... Uh, seed material for about seven, eight or nine crops. Um, we tried direct sowing of seed in our trial up here at Foreside and um, as sometimes happens in research, that was a spectacular failure. <laughs> um, but what we also did was look at um, germinating the seed uh, in the nursery to produce transplants, similar to how some vegetable crops uh, propagated and then um, established. And um, we've had some quite good success in the survival of those transplants. So so between 75 and 90% survival, and we think we could probably optimise that more with better hardening off of that seedling material um, in the future. Could you, for those who don't know, namely myself, what, what's hardening off? What does that mean? Oh, when you grow, when you germinate a seed in a nursery and raise it, um, it's a very a luxurious, soft environment. So it's warm, it's reasonably humid, there's lots of water and nutrient available. Um, and then when you plant them out, it's um, a big like, bit like the big harsh world in comparison to the nursery. <laughs> They've had a really luxurious upbringing. Then. Yeah, and they're a bit soft. <laughs> so, so usually, you know, we just literally put them outside the nursery. You know, we might pull back on the water. Um, we just make sure they're exposed to a good bit of wind and, you know, bright sun. And it just um, it's like a halfway house between the nursery and being planted out. Now, why you're a, you're a fruit man? I understand. Why are you delving into herbs? Yeah, well, I'm a horticultural scientist um, primarily, I suppose, and um, I have worked um, for some years, particularly with cherries, and but also other fruit. Um, and essentially, I, but essentially, I'm interested in how plants interact with the environment to produce a product that we want um, for a customer, and um, essentially. Um, Some industry partners came along that had identified customers in a global marketplace interested in traditional herbs. Um, These are perennial plants. Um, Sure, we're harvesting generally roots, not fruit. Um, But as a horticultural scientist, to me, that's a great challenge and a really fascinating um, area to investigate. It might be early days to say this, but do you believe these crops do have a future in Tasmania? Oh, look, I really hope so. I, I wouldn't be drawn to say I believe they will. Um, uh, as a sceptical scientist that tries to be objective uh, as, as possible. Um, I like any research where we've got some wins and, you know, some, some, and then some things aren't working out. Um, some of these crops are showing some potential. Um, it's a very different crop in that the quality is assessed on the sort of chemical bioactive component of the roots. 
So it's something that we've got a very steep learning curve um, to embark on and to achieve it. Um, but, but nevertheless, we, we're hopeful. Um, we're certainly uh, not getting ahead of ourselves. We're only one year into our field trials, so <laughs> we, um, we have a, a huge amount to learn. Um, but as we discussed here at the field day today, um, we certainly see Tasmanian farmers as part of that um, in, in um, ultimately, hopefully, developing some of these into potential, potentially economically um, feasible um, crops for Tasmania. Dougald, I understand you've got a couple of PhD students coming soon to the team. Can you tell me a bit about them and why they're important to the team? Yes, our industry partner has connections with Nanjing University of Chinese Medicine. So this is a whole university that focuses on traditional herbs for Chinese medicines um, and have been doing so for a long time. So as you could understand, they've got a huge level of expertise over there. And so we've recruited a couple of PhD students from that university, um, one of which is a lecturer in um, use of Chinese herbs and another one who's worked in industry in China looking at quality control of these herbs. So they come to us with a huge amount of background knowledge, which is very important to us because we don't have that background. We don't have a cultural arts growing market in Australia, certainly in Melbourne and Sydney, but we don't have a big culture around it yet. Um, and so whilst we'll be training these PhD students around horticultural growing systems and plant chemistry and the like, um, we'll certainly be learning a lot from them about the traditional uses of the herbs, the traditional growing systems of the herbs um, that they've learnt um, through their roles in China. Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture's Dougal Close giving Meg Powell an update on a groundbreaking trial into growing Chinese medicinal herbs in the state. We'll talk about on-farm accommodation in a moment. The ABC Giving Tree for 2022 is up and decorated. The appeal raises donations for Tasmanians most in need over the holiday season. Donate online now at abc.net.au forward slash giving tree. Closer to Christmas, we distribute your generosity through charities right around Tasmania. You might miss dropping a present under the tree, but empowering a family to make their own choices about what they have for Christmas and how they use the money you give is the true gift of giving. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Finally today, the chance to generate a new income stream from an existing asset is often the law encouraging farmers to develop accommodation on their properties. But for those not yet on board with farm stays or Airbnb, there's a lot to think about. That was the focus of a recent expo where presenters like Jen Clark shared their insights. So we're looking at the various aspects of hosting, of running accommodation, um, and sort of looking at that through a lens of five different pillars, I guess. So things like sustainability, accessibility, social responsibility, all these sorts of things that have become more important, particularly sort of after the advent of COVID. Um, There's a a big movement towards uh, people seeking more uh, ethical, I suppose, properties or properties that are run with more ethical sort of values and also just broadening, I suppose, broadening our reach. So becoming more inclusive and um, catering to people who have diverse needs and those sorts of things as well. Um, So thinking, you know, outside of the square, I guess, is the kind of all-encompassing way of putting it. Are people doing that? Are they making their spaces um, widely accessible? 
at the moment, only one in 25 properties is deemed accessible. So that's about 4%, which is, I think, is not good enough or nowhere near good enough. Um, so for anyone who has specific accessibility needs, they're very limited in what they can, you know, where they can choose to holiday. Richard Hoxley is Principal Planner at Crowther and Sadler. He spoke at the Expo in Bucken and said it's important to consider your local council's planning scheme when establishing accommodation on your property. It can deal with a number of things such as uh, style of buildings and, and consideration of the natural environment, um, amenity to neighbours, um, having regard to you know, other activities around them, particularly with farming and so forth, so as to ensure that what, what's around isn't being impacted or uh, restricted as a result of uh, visitors and accommodation being offered. Um, having regard also to yeah, protection of the environment, native vegetation, uh, wastewater disposal and those sorts of things that you know, are pretty much um, day-to-day but uh, take a different context with accommodation and intensification of development on, on particularly rural land that often has fewer services to it. Um, and then there's, of course, the consideration of making sure that people and their guests are kept safe. We've, you know, uh, East Gippsland has, a, has challenges with natural hazards, as they're, dis, as they're often described, but with, between bushfire and flood and, and things like that, and, and storm conditions as well, making sure that people are able to come and visit and be safe as they come, stay and leave. And so on that, is it a difficult thing to do to, get, to build something and get it set up as an accommodation premise on your property? It can, look, it, it can be challenging. Um, difficult, I'm going to say no, but I think that's somewhat subjective as well. <laughs> um, for someone with less experience in the planning realm and understanding um, planning controls and other controls as well, uh, regulatory controls, um, they could see it as very challenging. Um, but for people that operate in that space daily, such as myself, um, we don't see it as necessarily complex, but it is a process. Is it something that there's a lot of demand for? Do a lot of people come to you um, looking for you to do this sort of work? Look, we do a field, a, a reasonable level of inquiry, I'll say, on an annual basis. Um, it's not a huge proportion of our work um, because a lot of it can be undertaken. As I say, most people will run a B&B um, on their own uh, and not necessarily trigger or require planning approval. There's probably a number of others that are doing it without all the, the regulatory control in place and they fly under the radar. Um, so, look, we, we deal with some a variety um, and, and yeah, it's common but not necessarily the bulk of our work. And why should you do it the right way? Well, the implications can be significant if you don't. Um, you know, and, and equally the effects, as we've seen with the presentations, you want your guests to have a good experience and as part of that is making sure you're running it properly, safely um, and sustainably in some instances and, with, and, and having regard to the environment. So the planning process helps to balance all of that. Um, we're, as, as planners, we're sort of the jack of all trades. Um, got to know a, a little bit about everything but not necessarily be an expert other than in, in we'll say, the planning process. Planning process consultant Richard Hoxley ending that report from Peter Somerville on things to think about if you're intending to go down the farm stay track. Don't forget our ABC Rural Online or ABC Rural Facebook page as well. Plenty of great stories there. That's our Country Hour for today. We'll catch you after midday tomorrow.